right, it looks like we're ready to get started. Um, so welcome to, again, chapter two, Knowing Sin, Seeing a Neglected Doctrine Through the Eyes of the Puritans. Let us begin our study this morning with a prayer of confession. Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us a sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. There is always forgiveness in you. Restore us to the joy of your salvation. Bind up that which is broken. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, and rest to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we will be studying Chapter 2 of Knowing Sin by Mark Jones, entitled Sin's Contagion. Knowing Sin has 18 chapters. Last week, Ryan led us through Chapter 1 on Sin's Origins. And next week, we'll be taking on Chapter 3, which is Sin's Privation. As a reminder, our author, Mark Jones, is the senior minister at Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church in Vancouver. He's the author and editor of many books and speaks all over the world on topics related to Christian life. This morning, we'll be primarily referencing chapter six of the Westminster Confession of Faith to help us understand the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. If you're interested in digging deeper into these topics, I would also recommend the Belgic Confession, Articles 14 and 15, the Heidelberg Catechism, Questions 5 through 14, the Second Helvetic Confession, Chapter 8, the Canons of Dort, Articles 1.1, 2.1, 2.2, and 3.1 through 3.4, also in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Questions 13 through 19, and the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 21 through 29. Each one of these statements of faith or confessions of the church have similar doctrines um, that will help to broaden your understanding. We'll start our study with a reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. which reads as follows. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. In this text, 
what is the image of God in man? Can you throw out some different versions of what you've heard people say that the image of God is? Maybe they'll be good ideas and some bad ideas, but any, anything that you've heard will be helpful. Okay. Our art is connecting image of God to a creation mandate of dominion. Uh, our spiritual nature, okay, representative. Um, okay, so we are to be God for create to creation, uh, project His image to creation. Oh, like a like a copy. Okay. Okay. Is there? Is there any way that you think that image is intending to differentiate man from the beasts of the field? So, it, like, in what way is man different from animal? Sometimes I hear people talk about uh, that the image of God in man is saying something about, um, for instance, like what man can do, or his knowledge. Uh, you know, like intelligence or something like this. Um, can you can you explain why you think that might not be a good description of what the image of God in man is, or what the pitfalls of thinking that way would be? Go ahead. Right. So so you might fall down the path of saying somebody who's mentally disabled then is not human, right? Okay. Ethically, right. Right, because when you put man and human on the or human and beast on the same continuum, then what you're then saying is that you know man is an animal just with more intelligence, something along those lines, right? Some people going down the the image or the reflection path, right, um, that we're mirroring God might say that we have some that it's communicating something in common with God, right? Can you think of how that might lead us in a in a path of error. For instance, like saying, man has knowledge, God has knowledge. So it's saying the image of God in man is saying that man is like God in that they both have a certain type of knowledge. So art, art is saying that man has purpose that is unique, that's, that's not shared with all of uh, all of animal kind. Okay, so some some problem with saying that man is sharing something similar to God, or is sharing some quality that is similar, or that is as as a similar reflection in God is, you might go down the path of saying that well, then man is like a little god, right? Or or that God is just like just like man except more. He, he has a knowledge, we have knowledge, but God is just more knowledgeable than we are, and that's what makes him God, right? So what Mark Jones is going to try to argue for is that man is not an animal, man is not a God, right? He is a ontologically distinct being. Um, and if man is ontologically distinct, then what kind of being is he? That's what we're going to get into. Mark Jones is taking the position 
that man is unique in that God endowed man with both natural life and spiritual life, right? So his natural life concerned the union of his body and soul so that we see Adam as a body-soul composite or a soulish body. This is his language. His spiritual life involved the communion he enjoyed with God. Let's keep reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And another account, another account of man's creation, right? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So Mark Jones is saying that besides creating him in righteousness, and holiness with the moral law written on his heart, God gave Adam the Holy Spirit. Here a connection is being proposed between the image of God in man and communion with God and the role of the Holy Spirit. Let's do a quick survey to see how some historical figures have viewed this relationship. Thomas Goodwin affirmed that the Holy Spirit was, quote, in Adam's heart to assist his graces and cause them to flow and bring forth and to move him to live according to those principles of life given him. Hermann Bavink says, or he spoke of the importance of the Spirit for communion with God. This is his quote, the, the Holy Spirit is the author of all creaturely life and specifically of the religious ethical life in humans. True human, or the true human who bears God's image is inconceivable even for a moment without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Adam could not enjoy spiritual life apart from the working or the spirit working in him to love and serve his father in heaven. The spirit was a mediator between Adam and his father, a bond of love between, between them, just as the spirit is a bond of love between the son and the father. And here we have John Owen. John Owen says, let the natural faculties of the soul, the mind, will, and affections be created pure, innocent, undefiled, yet there is not enough to enable any rational creature to live to God. Much less was it all that was in Jesus. There is, moreover, 
There is moreover required hereunto superadded natural endowments of grace, superadded unto the natural faculties of our souls. If we live unto God, there must be a principle of spiritual life in us as well as of life natural. This was the image in Adam and was wrought in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So in reading each one of those quotes, I'm starting to see that each one of them are talking about a similar topic, but not exactly the same topic, right? So, but here we're, what we're trying to do is hold on to this idea that the image of God in man has something to do with communion with God, right? And the role of the Holy Spirit also has something to do with communion with God, right? All three of these things are related in some fashion. But if the image of God has something to do with communion, with the, or with with union and communion that Adam had with the Father, it raises the question, how did the fall affect the image of God in man? Is the image of God something that can be lost? It's part of the question, right? Um, Let's just get some more dialogue before we get into an answer, though. It cannot be lost, but it can be corrupted. Okay. Is there anybody who would like to take this stance of yes, it can be lost for purposes, right? So we're not necessarily talking about regeneration like we talk about in New Covenant terms, right? Because clearly, Adam wasn't regenerated because he wasn't fallen, right? Prior to the fall. Um, there's, and, and the Holy Spirit works in different times for different purposes, different reasons. Um, and not all of the Holy Spirit's work is talking about spiritual regeneration. Right? Um, I, don't, I don't know a good answer to your question, though. Um, but uh, if, go ahead, Blake. Um, what, what was the first, the first part of it? So we had the work of the Holy Spirit to enliven them and versus what? Um, I just read it for some context. I wasn't necessarily coming to a conclusion as a result of that. But, um, but making this distinction is going to help us understand the image of God later as we get through this. Um, so for now, let's think about what would be the pitfall associated with saying that, yes, man lost the image of God in the fall. If you were to take a yes stance on that question, what would be bad about saying that man has lost the image of God? You think that we would become actually autonomous from God if we lost his image? Is that in some sense? All right. Okay, so it would be false in that sense. Okay. So, so if man is created in the image of God, then he would become no longer man if he is no longer in the image of God, right, in some sense. So that would be like saying that now man has become an animal, right, as a result of losing the image of God. Let's go on the other side now. What if we were to say that man could not lose the image of God? What error could we fall down if we went down that path? 
Right, very good. So if Adam didn't lose something in the fall, then there is no need for Christ, right? And that means that we are in the same situation as Adam is. That means the fall was, uh, didn't affect, if, it, if the fall didn't affect the image of God and man, then we have no need of a savior, right? That, so that would be called Pelagianism, right? So let's investigate this further, looking at chapter six of the Westminster Confession. So what, chapter six is of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. Paragraph two is, on, is entitled Fallen and Sinful, and it reads this way. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of the soul and body. So from this text, what are the consequences of the fall? Just throw, throw one out there if you see it. Okay, so we have loss of righteousness. Right, so there's, there's some impact to the communion that man has with God. Right, so whatever life was promised was lost because now they are dead in sin, right? Unjustified. Where, where are you seeing that part? Okay. Original righteousness. We also have this text of holy defiled, right? So this is some, saying something about man has become unclean, right? He is not fit for God's, for the worship of God anymore, right? Um, so let's, let's step through each one of those. What is meant by original righteousness, right? We just had a moment ago, had it equated to something to do with ju being justified, right? Um, what, is, what does somebody lose if they lose? What, what abilities does somebody lose if they lose original righteousness? What can they no longer do? Please God. Please God. Okay. They can no longer be righteous, okay? Ethically, right? Right, so they can no longer image forth their creator. So Adam has lost now the ethical ability to please God, right? That's where we landed here, that in his, he can't please God in his worship. He can't please God in his service, right? He can't please God in his obedience. So now, as we step to the next one, what is communion with God, and how has this become affected by the fall? Relationship. So whatever relationship Adam had has now some, somehow been impacted by the fall. Go ahead, Kylie. Closeness, uh, intimacy between Adam and the Father, right? Okay, you can't communicate with him? Yes. So, some things that I wrote down. Um, so we're incapable of knowing God as a result of this. Um, being in his presence, there's an intimacy, right? We're incapable of 
uh, being able to see God's glory as the greatest good. Somehow the image of God in man here we see has been corrupted in some sense. We'll deal with the death topic in a moment. Uh, let's see. What do you think uh, the phrase holy defiled is getting at? Rotten through it through. Okay, so not, not a single molecule that's not affected by the fall. All right, can you think of, go ahead. In our, in our, our whole being, right? So um, other words, synonyms that you might have heard with regard to this wholly defiled statement, we have total depravity, radical corruption, right? Um, so we're not talking about utter depravity. Uh, not only our hearts, souls, mind, and strength, but also our physical bodies have also been corrupted as a result of the fall. So for the topic of death and sin, let's begin by reading again Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it reads this way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so certainly this is curse of the fall, but what does it mean? Um, what do you think it really means to be dead in sin? Okay, there's a sense that so there's a sense that we have uh, we're still human, but have lost the the ability to be truly human in the sense that what God has required of us, right? Loss of perfection, okay. In a certain sense, right? Sometimes people call that like a state of innocency or something like that. So certainly we've become defiled by sin. Okay. Do you think that there's also a physical sense to this dead end sin? in addition to a spiritual sense. We all die. That, some people like to say, well, that's, uh, you know, sometimes it's, 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 it's rare to find incontrovertible evidence, you know, of, uh, of doctrines in the, in the Christian religion, but here's one of them, right? That nobody, nobody can die or deny original sin because 100% of everybody, you know, dies. Um, we all suffer the consequences of the fall. So death cannot mean the end of our existence, right? Because certainly even fallen sinners um, are resurrected to a life of, in hell, right, of eternal punishment. So in some seth, sense, death has to do with the loss of the image of God, right? Because we talked a little bit about here the promise of life was a promise of union and communion with the Father, right? And in some sense, that has been corrupted. So let's get into that just a little bit. So in according with Mark Jones, um, losing the image of God 
must be understood not to mean the complete loss or a complete loss so that humans are now no different than animals. Historically, Reformed theologians have distinguished between the image of God broadly, that is metaphysically or ontologically, and narrowly, that is ethically considered. Narrowly is, or narrowly it is lost to sin, but broadly it is ruined but not altogether lost. So let's go back to our previous question. How did the fall affect the image of God in man? Is the image of God something that can be lost? So we say, well, metaphysically, no, the fall did not result in, the man, be, in man becoming an animal or something different, right? But ethically, yes, the fall rendered man ethically incapable of knowing God, being in his presence, and being able to see God's glory as the greatest good, right? So the answer to the question is a yes and no, right? We, we don't, there's no basis for sin in us if we are not uh, created for that purpose, right? So that's exactly where I was going with this. So good. Um, what, what is it? So Blake used the word mar, right? What is it that mars the image of God in us? Sin? And, and who, who sins? We do, right? So fallen man is ethically opposed to his own ontological nature, right? Think about what an abomination fallen man is, right? A creature living oppo in opposition to his very nature, right? God has created us with purpose, for a purpose. He has communicated that purpose to us by way of covenant, and what has man done? What has he done with it? Rebelled, right? Yeah, so it's more, than, it's more than a passive thing, right? It's not, oh, we just deny it or don't accept it, right? Um, nothing that innocent. Man hates his own purpose, right? And he hates the God who gave him that purpose. It also says something about the work of the Holy Spirit in us, right? In that if we are opposed to that work, um, it must take a great work to, to redeem us, you know? So now getting into the doctrine of total depravity, right? Um, we're reading uh, paragraph four from chapter six of the Westminster Confession. And I'll read it out loud. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So we've talked about this a little bit already, but what do you think is meant by original corruption here. So do you think that it's speaking of something that was done, an act? It's saying something about our nature, right? Right, so 
the, the word original here is trying to get at where, what is the origin, right, of corruption. The origin is, you know, where our sin comes from, right? And for, for fallen man, sin comes from our fallen nature, our sin nature, right? So, and that is rooted in Adam, right? So what is the relationship? You see at the, there, what is the relationship between original corruption and the actual transgression? Right, so sinners, sin, right? So it's a, it's a uh, root and fruit, right? It's, it's a, this is the transgressions are the consequence of having a sin nature. Yeah, as we become hardened by our sin. So what do you think? Here? So right here it says, whereby we are utterly indisposed. What does utterly indisposed mean? Completely? So we're totally unwilling to do good, defiant, insubordinate, right? These are all good synonyms. Um, cannot not sin, okay? So well then, what should our attitude be regarding our original sin. Mark Jones says, original sin refers not to a voluntary act committed by Adam or us, but denotes what we received from him and possessed before we ever did anything. We are formed in our mother's wounds as sinners and stand guilty before God the moment we are conceived. Original sin explains why all actual evil in the world exists. From our corruption issues corrupt acts as a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Okay, the explanation for Genesis 6-5, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually is original sin. So here's a question. Should we grieve and repent our original sin, given this definition? So, uh, okay, so that's one definition of grieve, right? So, so yeah, we, we can wish it never happened, wish the fall never happened, right? Um, what does it mean? Or what about, let's focus then more on the repent side. Should we repent of our original sin? Okay. Right. And that's what original sin is, right? We're talking about our sin nature. Should it grieve us to our hearts, you know, that we are by nature against God, against our creation, or creator, right? I think we should. Without Christ's work, right? We... <laughs> So let's do a quick survey now of how some historical figures have viewed original sin. All sins are, as Thomas Goodwin argues, reduced unto two branches. First, that which consists in the guilt of some act of sin done or, or, and perpetrated 
or second, an inherent corruption in the heart contracted by that guilt. When Adam sinned, both of these were true of himself. He incurred an everlasting guilt before God, which led to death. Terribly, all of Adam's natural descendants would likewise experience the same state, guilt before God and a loss of holiness. We are both guilty and defiled. Like Adam, we need the promise of God's grace in Jesus Christ and its application. Uh, did Adam regret that he sinned? Um, you think he, so you can definitely say he probably didn't like the consequences of the fall, right? Um, was Adam uh, saved? Is that what you're saying? You know, did he, did he believe in the promise? Um, it's difficult for me to answer that, you know, based on biblical knowledge. Uh, so, uh, Blake, do you have any ideas about um, or opinions on that topic? Okay. Right, and then, but on the other hand, uh, you, like, you look at, still in the New Testament, that the categories are dead in Adam or alive in Christ. So, it's, so for me, it's also difficult to reconcile that idea that, that if Adam is regenerate, then how can we refer to his um, posterity as dead in Adam, right? There's, there's a difficulty that I have with it. Um, but I don't know that it's explicitly spelled out in scripture anywhere though. Yeah. So total depravity, so we're still on Thomas Goodwin. Total depravity does not mean we are as sinful as we possibly can be. Otherwise, the human race would have extinguished itself a thousand times over through murder alone. But as poison mixed in water affects every drop, all parts of the soul are affected by sin. When Goodwin speaks of sin's total defilement, he says, it rests not in one member only, but beginning at the understanding, eats into the will and affections, soaks through all. Those diseases we account strongest, which seize not on a joint or member only, but strike rottenness through the whole body. Right, so this um, this is why you should not take, uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off as a, as a uh, literal command, right? Um, sin's contagion spreads not only from Adam to his posterity, but everywhere within each person. For me, this is helpful. Um, when we speak of total depravity, we're speaking of an extensive corrupt corruption. So there's not a part of man that is not corrupted by the fall. It's not a statement of, it's not an intensive statement talking about the magnitude of corruption, but rather the, uh, how far that corruption has sp spread that, such that there's no part in man that is undefiled. Go ahead. So um, let me bring that up again, I think, on my next slide. Um, so... But yeah, don't forget it, because I, I think I want to circle back to it. Um, so we talked about total depravity as extensive, not intensive. And then when we speak about mortification, think of that as intensive, not extensive. Right? So th these categories are helpful for me in understanding.
So maybe the next slide. Uh, in a sense, this is Mark Jones again, in a sense we can recognize the good job of unbelievers contributing to the common good of mankind by the common grace at work or of God at work in the entire world. But in the end, every work of the unbeliever gets performed without faith in Christ. In this sense, no work of an unbeliever qualifies as a truly good work. Okay, so now we have to answer the question of how widespread is the problem of sin. So this is paragraph three, chapter six. They being the root of all mankind, that would be our first parents, Adam and Eve, the guilt of sin, or the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. So here, what does the word root mean, as in root of all mankind? Biologically, like, so, so some people would use the word like organically, right? So this, there's a natural connection between all of mankind and Adam and Eve. Okay, so what does the relationship, what is the relationship that, Ad, or that Eve has then? It's kind of a tricky question. What is the relationship that Eve has with fallen humanity? Okay, Eve sinned, right? Eve sinned even before Adam, right? What it, does her sin have anything to do with our condition? Okay. They, okay, so there's some solidarity between the two of them, right? Some corporate nature, they're a family unit. Okay, so Adam is our representative. He's what we call federal head, covenantal head, right? So he stands for humanity. He stands for Eve as well, right? So uh, Eve is the mother of all living, and we share a organic relationship with her, but not a covenantal relationship with her. Okay, so what does the word impute mean? We see this also you know, when we talk about imputing Christ's righteousness to us. Putting on, yeah, so maybe what are some synonyms? Putting on, is it, what's that? Assigned, yes. It is, it's a legal term, right? Okay, so we have account or reckon, assign, these are all good words, right? So legally, as though we have committed Adam's act of rebellion. We, and have already been judged guilty by God. It sets the foundation for Christ's gracious work as well. What about convey? So we see here that this moral corruption is somehow conveyed. What do you think is co conveyed means? Inherit. Inherit? Okay. Um, you see that it's done... Uh, by ordinary generation, right? So there, there's something, there's something uh, organic here as well, of corruption being passed down uh, by inherit by uh, by ordinary generation, right? Through through their descendants. 
Um, and why, if we think about ordinary generation then, why, why is this a good phrase to use in this context? That this death in sin, corrupt nature are conveyed to their posterity by ordinary generation. What is it excluding? Christ, right? Divine generation. So what are some examples of something that's not ordinary generation? Christ. So yeah, Christ's incarnation is not ordinary. Right? So he so the this same death in sin and corrupt nature is not something that he has. Right? Adam, right? Adam and Eve were not formed by ordinary generation, right? So back to this topic. Um, do, should we look at uh, regeneration, being born again as extraordinary generation in this sense? This is a difficult, difficult one for me. Yes? So it's... it's uh, Supernatural, right? It's a special act of providence. This is God acting above ordinary means. Um, but should we be looking at it in this sense right here of um, do, is, is new birth saying that we don't receive the uh, death and sin and corrupt nature, though? I, so... I, when I start to think in this way, then I start to think, well, that sounds antinomian, right? As if, because at that point, if we're saying rebirth is somehow uh, extraordinary generation, then that's, then, then that's kind of, well, or it's also saying that we, we cannot sin or that, um, or that uh, Christ doesn't fulfill a purpose in the life of, believer, of a believer, right? There's... There's something missing there. I don't know if there's any ideas about this one, but this, this is a point of uncertainty for me, whether that's an appropriate way to talk about these things. Um, is the guilt of sin universal? Is there any part of humanity that's not affected by the sin or by the original? Adam's word. What's that? Only one. Only one man is immune from that. That was the, yes, I, th I think that's the primary pur purpose there. So John Calvin on the doctrine of original sin. So theological traditions have weakened the doctrine of original sin. Some affirm the loss of original righteousness while denying universal corruption of the soul. John Calvin spoke truly we are so vitiated and perverted in every part of our nature that by this great corruption we stand justly condemned and convicted before God. Calvin here highlights the extensiveness of original sin in our nature. The language of total depravity accurately captures the idea of what is being expressed. So... I know discussing the sinfulness of the world can be a rather depressing topic, but Christ encourages us to take heart for he has overcome the world. So let's take a 
let's take our last few minutes here uh, to make sure that our witness isn't void of the gospel message, right? So looking at some of these topics that we discussed today, how do these ideas here connect to the gospel? The need of a savior, right? So the sinfulness of man, right, tells us something about the holiness of God and our need of a savior, right? Hope. Uh, so yeah, without without the gospel, um, without Christ's work, then that then God's purposes are undone by man, right? So what what about the so natural man rejects truth? What does that say about our witness to unbelievers? Right. So the leaving it up to God part, right? That. Yes. Right. They may not be excited to hear. Yes. So, so it is. It is not without regeneration. It's. It's not. It's. It's saying something about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the means that God has ordained for this purpose. Right. That if man is by his fallen nature, oriented in opposition to this message, it says something about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the presentation, right? What about this lost communion with God? What part of the gospel is, is dealing with the loss of communion? Okay. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Okay. Right. So... That, that is, well, and actually, it's this guy too, that is the promised inheritance, right? Life in Christ. Christ off, freely offers to us the union and communion that he has with the Father, you know, in, in the gospel message, right? We are united to the Father by nature of our union with Christ. And that is eternal life. So, wrapping up, that's all we have for today. Um, Join, I encourage everyone to join us next week when we'll be taking on chapter three, which is sin's privation. Thank you.